Technology, it's changing every facet of our lives. The way we work, the way we play, the way we shop, and the way we learn. Today, I'm very excited to have Opender Bawa, CIO and Vice President of the University of San Francisco. Thanks for joining me today, Opener. Thank you very much for having me here, Josh. Opener, how is technology changing not just the business of higher ed, but the student experience? Thanks, Josh, great question. Students coming into college these days have very high expectations. They've had fairly rich experience with technology at home, at their high schools, and just generally expectations are pretty significant. So part of our responsibility is to make sure that we live up to their expectations. Not only that, but make sure that they experience college in a way that's meaningful, both in person, when they're being instructed by faculty, by using high-quality technology in the classrooms, by making certain things like lectures available to them offline in case they want to review the materials, in case they missed a class, just the experience of being on site and being engaged in multiple clubs, multiple activities that are outside the school, but are very technology-intensive. Those are the types of expectations that students have coming into colleges and universities these days. And how about on the back end, the, the business or the delivery of education? What do you see happening that you're excited about? The way we look at technology in universities and the way students experience technology in universities is twofold. One is infrastructure, meaning the way they experience and their interpretation of infrastructure is the way they experience a network, specifically the Wi-Fi network. As long as the Wi-Fi network is fast enough, and they have a good, clean connection to the internet, that's one part of the experience that they're very used to. The other part of the expectation they have is systems they interact with, processes they interact with, the ability to register for classes, add a drop a class. Um, those are the types of systems that they want to experience in more of a seamless way. They're digital natives. So they have a very low tolerance from multiple systems that are disconnected and disparate, where they have to enter information many times. And they like that to be a lot more seamless than they are today. A lot of what we will focus on is those two elements. How do we make infrastructure as simple as possible? So what they're experiencing is simple internet connections as fast as they like. And secondly, it's how do we make systems and processes, how do we modify them or change them or improve them to uh, make their experience and digital interaction with the university as seamless as possible. And that includes academic systems. That includes systems in the classroom. That includes the way they take quizzes. That includes the way that professors take a poll in the class. So the ability for them to use technologies on their iPhones or their smartphones to actually poll a class and be able to present the results in real time on the screen. That's the way we think about technology and how students expect is those two categories, infrastructure and then the actual experience itself. And then I know you're working on a piece about transformation cycles. Can you explain what those are and where we're at with the transformation of higher ed right now? So the two industries that are going through a transformation period are healthcare and higher education. And both of these, the transformation periods, have a 30, 40, 50 year period during which they transform. In higher education, the catalyst was when the supply of universities actually exceeded 
the demand for universities, which probably happened about eight to 10 years ago, or probably in the second decade or towards the end of the first decade of this transformation. During these transformation periods, one of the things that is very true, if you look at several other industries that have gone through this process, is the fact that technology plays a very large role in the successful transformation of that industry. So a lot of things that we take for granted in terms of automation, experience, the ability for us to just conduct normal business change over time. The way instruction gets delivered changes over time. We're not talking about a dramatic change. We're not talking about a change that says everything has to be online, but it has to be incorporated into the daily lives of students. A great example I use very often Today, the average graduation rate in the United States is somewhere in the 60% range. Is that high or low? Is That's pretty low in my expectation. Now, if you look at the historical trends of universities and their graduation rates, USF is, for example, in the mid-80s. That's considered an excellent graduation rate. But let's be honest. Would you and I buy a car that works 80% of the time? I hope not. Would we buy a house that doesn't leak 85% of the time? And I hope not. So over time, our expectations have to shift. We have to make sure that we're helping the right students get to the right schools, make sure that they get the support and guidance they need to successfully graduate and lead meaningful lives, not just get a job, not just get a financial reward at the end of it. So part of what we have to do during this transformation period is really pay attention to these things in a way that we've never done before. Historically, what we've done is we've brought in classes into our batches of students. We've put them through the cycle and they graduate four to five years later. In the future world during this transformation period, one of the things we're gonna have to start doing is paying attention to individual students and what they need and how they learn, what they need to be successful, what do they need to graduate on time or a slight behind schedule, but make sure they are actually successful. So the transformation periods are, uh, are very uh, enticing in one way and they're very technology rich in another way. Uh, and we're lucky that uh, we're living in a time when Silicon Valley and corporations have actually shown us what some of these technologists can do to help us through these transformations. Right. And speaking of that, I know you have a lot of experience in Silicon Valley. So in light of how education is changing, what can higher ed CIOs learn from their peers in the world of business? I know you're very passionate about this yeah, subject. Yeah, good question. One of the reasons I moved into higher ed and, and healthcare and I became interested in these segments is because what I discovered was the the technology leaders in this industry had grown up in that industry. They had grown up within higher education or they were grown up within healthcare. And they really didn't have the variety and diversity of experience to bring the best outcomes for their organizations. So one of the things I did, for example, I asked a couple of my colleagues, CIO colleagues, to join the Board of Trustees Committee on Information Technology at the university. And these colleagues, of course, that's a bold step. It's very, very unnerving at times that you have peers that actually are looking over your shoulder and right. uh, sharing with the trustees whether you're doing a good job or not. But you have to take bold steps of that nature to make sure that you are doing the best possible job for the university. Another example is University of San Francisco is part of 28 Jesuit universities in the United States. 
And the 28 CIOs meet once or twice a year to talk about common issues, common problems, common technologies, common vendors, things, people that we should stay away from, people that we should work more closely with, whether they're software providers, hardware providers, system integrators. We talk about how we can work more closely with our boards. Uh, how do we work closely with the presidents and the cabinet members? How do we pitch our ideas? One of the most common things we talk about is how do you put together an IT project, a technology project, which is really a business project, and put a business justification on it? How do you do an ROI on a project? Those are things that are uh, not easy to understand, fathom, share, collaborate on, be coached on. And very often, I, I call upon my experience, which you mentioned, uh, my first 15 years of my career were all Silicon Valley startups, corporations, venture firms. I, I call upon a lot of those skills that are learned, my mentors from those organizations that I still meet with regularly to help me through this process. And uh, in turn, then I can help the other CIOs in this process. So there are several things CIOs can do to be more effective than what they are today. For instance? For instance, join a couple of CIO councils that are local to you. So this is not just unique to Silicon Valley or the San Francisco Bay Area. There are CIO councils in almost every city. So join one of them. Be productive, collaborate with them, um, learn from each other uh, as much as you can. The other is if you're bold enough, you know, ask to put together in a CIO advisory council for yourself, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what university you're in. Pick a couple of CIOs you're comfortable with and get them to give you advice on a regular basis. Show them all the projects you're working on. Show them all the issues you're having. It's much more of a coaching opportunity and a learning opportunity than just being able to run things, ideas, by them. So there's a difference between coaches and mentors. And my, my advice always is find a coach because it's much more long-term beneficial to a person than just a mentor. And then engage with local businesses. There are a lot of local businesses in every city. Uh, find a couple of CIOs that you'd get along with and you think it would have an interest in helping uh, you grow as a person. What I've found is almost everybody I reach out to, when I share with them that I'm part of a university or university system and I ask them for their assistance, they're always willing to help because they feel it's a way to give back something they got from their own university and from their own experiences. Uh, it's just about finding the right match and the right opportunity to do that. The other is startups and corporations and venture firms. Every city has some level of venture funding. So get to know them. Get to know who their venture capitalists are. Get to know the startups they're working with and why. Even if you don't use the technology, you will gain so much understanding and experience of a world that is far beyond your own. And that just really broadens your horizons, which is one of the biggest things that uh, helps you grow as an individual. Especially the advisory council. That really is a brave thing because already you're at a public public or private institution, but you're at an institution where you probably have a decent amount of eyes on you already, and you're asking for more eyes, right? That's correct, Josh. Like I said, that's a bold step. And um, I, I must admit, you know, when I first suggested that, the president certainly you know, I took a breath and said, Penny, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, absolutely, Paul. Uh, our president, uh, Father Paul Fitzgerald, just an amazing person. And 
you know, he understood the value of it. And, um, you know, it played out over time. It's an incredibly valuable thing if you can overcome the fear. There is ways of doing that where you pick um, not confrontational colleagues, but friendly colleagues, you know, colleagues that are going to be honest, but also supportive. And they understand their job is to help you do a better job, not to question you, not to hold you accountable. And I think if you can have that honest conversation with anybody, they're going to be very valuable to you. And when you were talking about, you know, inviting the CIOs of private companies, you know, from Silicon Valley, from the business world, and then earlier you were talking about how higher education is changing, it occurred to me that in a lot of ways what you were saying is that you need to focus on outcomes, not just here's the books, here's the thing, have at it, but really thinking outcome-based So, and student success. In light of that, how do you see your role changing in the next five to 10 years? That's a good one, Josh. Let's unpack what you just brought up. First of all, universities need to start thinking about students as customers. That's a serious psychological transition that we need to make. Both healthcare and higher education is notorious in thinking they know best. And that's a challenge because I think part of what we've neglected over time is not to really think about everyone as a customer. A patient is a customer. Uh, There's actually a uh, healthcare system up in Seattle, it's in the papers, that the CEO of that healthcare system actually took their top executives, including physicians, over to the Toyota plant in Japan and make them work on an assembly line to explain to them and share with them how healthcare could be different, how their providers could be different. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of a very bold step. Similarly, in education, if we start thinking about students as customers and you know their parents as stakeholders and so on, the the way we think about these opportunities and the way we think about how we should service a customer and what support structures do we need, uh, how do we ask a basic question that we would never ask? And I'll give you an example. In the business world, there's there's some metrics. What's the cost of retaining a customer? What's the cost of losing a customer? And these metrics at the surface seems very superficial, but if you unpack them, it's a lot easier to retain a customer than to acquire a new customer. Now, I, I, I realize it's not a you know one form one correlation with higher education, but the concept applies. The concept is how do you help retain a student, help them be successful, help them stay in the university and graduate from your university in a meaningful way is going to be a lot more effective and less costly for universities than having to recruit more and more students because of the retention rates uh, not being as high as they should be. There are other business concepts that you bring to the table, such as ROI, return on investment. In every university, there are programs that get launched. There are technology initiatives that get launched. There are a couple of things that historically universities have not been very good at. One is uh, estimating the time and cost of those. Okay. If something's going wrong, uh, it's okay to put in more money and time and energy and let it and keep going in. So not holding people to some level of accountability for the cost of a, something that whether it's a program or technology or initiative, um, and also the time frames in which it was supposed to be delivered, they get elongated. So those are the types of things that I think universities have been working on what we call university time. Uh, things take longer; they always cost more. 
doesn't have to be the case. Right. Part of what I think uh, we can learn from businesses how to be a lot more uh, specific about our deliverables, how to deliver things, whether it's a new program, a new degree program, new initiative, the IT initiative, how do we make sure we actually deliver it on time, on budget, in a reasonable fashion? Uh, plus or minus, you know, 15% is a great example of, uh, of a well-delivered system. So there's so many things that we could learn from businesses and business outcomes that we actually bring to universities. And outcomes-based management becoming more nimble is right. another concept we need to bring from businesses. You have to become more nimble. It's great to launch a brand new program and to give it all the support it needs to be successful. But if it's not successful, we shouldn't be taking three, four years, five years to say, you know what, it's not working, let's tail it off. You need to be able to do it a little bit more nimbly. Start programs faster, but then close them down or shift gears, or if a program is supremely successful, then really grow it out fast, which is what being nimble is all about. So over the next, say, five, 10 years, is that what you're most excited about, bringing some of that discipline or structure from the private world to the University of San Francisco? Okay, yeah, that's uh, very well said, Josh. I think there are a couple of things I get really excited about is number one, Using some cutting-edge technologies that are available in corporations and the business world in Silicon Valley to really help improve the experience of the student, whether it's um, how they interact with the university, whether it's uh, how they interact with the professors, how the professors interact with them, uh, their graduation rates, how do we make sure they're successful. If they're struggling, how do we make sure we know they're struggling before they tell us and reach out to them. So that's one category of areas that I think I'm very excited about because there's a lot of potential there. And that plays directly into the transformation, successful, right. a successful transformation that I mentioned earlier. Right. The other thing is around education, helping universities become more nimble, especially USF, any others that I'm an advisor to, helping them more, become more nimble, helping them understand that some, some of this is in their DNA and it takes time to change, but you got to change. And it's uncomfortable. So right, how do change you, was easy. Everybody would do everybody it. Everybody right? would do it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things Father Paul, our president, very often says now, and you know, I'm glad he quotes me because he that means he understands it. Is we need to be doing things in startup time, not university time. Right. And a great example, Workday, um, the University of San Francisco implemented the uh, HR imperial system in nine months. Wow, HR and payroll, HR and payroll in, nine in nine months. months. Wow. And it was targeted for nine months, and we were plus or minus on the budget by 15%. And I say startup time, that's what I mean. A normal project of the magnitude in a university would have been 18 months to two years. Right. Wow. So it takes a, it takes a team to pull it off. What is your overall cloud or software as a service strategy? Really great question, Josh. I think this is one of the things that I... I probably share with my Seattle colleagues very often. Um, over the last 10 years, there's been a movement to cloud. Now, early on, what that meant for most CIOs is let me move away from my data center to a cloud data center. And what I've been coaching my fellow CIOs on is moving to the cloud is actually a multifaceted problem. And it, it should be taken as a multifaceted problem. Okay. And this is related to the SaaS issue. 
So the strategy that I've deployed for University of San Francisco and, the, and you know, my advice to the CIOs and the other HSUs has been first and foremost to move the applications to a SaaS platform, whether it's Salesforce, whether it's ServiceNow, whether it's Workday. So move the applications completely off of hardware first. Okay. And that could take you two years, that could take you five years, depending on what you're moving and how you're moving it. Uh, we moved to, for example, we moved, as I mentioned, to Salesforce, ServiceNow, Workday. Mm-hmm. We moved to SiteQuest, which is our purchasing system. We've moved to Moto Labs, which is our mobile system. So we moved to as many SaaS platforms as we can. Now, what I'm referring to is true SaaS platforms, not just systems in the cloud, not just systems hosted on Amazon. So the first wave is SaaS movement. Okay. The second wave is what must you keep on premises that you have to have? Now, if you have a data center and you've invested in it recently, keep it. It's going to be actually cheaper for you to run your own data center than host it in Amazon or Azure or one of the other service providers. Initially, it looks cheap. But when you really do the math over four or five years, six years, you end up paying a lot more to those service providers. Now, if you were going to build a data center, I would advise against it. That, I would say, it's not necessary these days. So that would be the second part of how, uh, you know, we look at the cloud-based strategy, if you will. Okay. The third is, what do you really need in the cloud? Disaster recovery is a great concept. For example, um, today, USF's use of the cloud is we have our authentication systems on-premises, off-premises. We have dual modes on everything which means if our data center goes down, a lot of the SaaS systems and will continue to work because our authentication systems on the cloud as well. And if for some reason the cloud goes down, our, then we have our on-premise system that actually still lets you get to the system. Right. So using, using, the, uh, using cloud strategy as part of your disaster recovery mechanism is a brilliant game. So those, that's the way I look at cloud strategy and those three major components. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Opender Bawa, CIO and Vice President of the University of San Francisco, for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Josh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.